0: My name is Nesha Ruther, and this is a Bond & Grace production. Bond & Grace is a publishing and art house. We republish classic novels as luxury coffee table books, which we call art novels. Each art novel contains three essential ingredients. Every word of the featured classic novel, annotations from our Ph.D. scholars, and the original work of emerging artists. Today, I'm joined with my colleague, Maggie Lamack, the Bond & Grace art director, We sat down with two artists featured in the Secret Garden art novel, Abigail Matheson and Abby Olson. Together we discussed the rich legacy of traditional forms of art making and how they can be applied to the modern world. We begin by asking Abigail M. about her background.
1: My training or I guess how I'm able to use oil paints because they are so technical. I basically found a local artist because I grew up in Austin, Texas so there are lots of artists but I started just going on Saturdays for a couple hours and learned with her so I had to basically do the classical training where you start with just doing charcoals and you had to basically work your way up to being able to use oil paints and first you could only use black and white and then you could eventually use colors so it was a really interesting education in that everything built on the previous step and I was doing something that has been done for centuries.
0: Abigail Matheson is an artist based in Charleston, South Carolina. While her undergraduate studies focused on neuroscience and philosophy, she draws upon her background as a classically trained oil painter to capture the effects of both light and air. She uses this academic approach to her medium to depict the secret garden in a new light. Her work interrogates the dynamic of discovery between life and death and mimics the arc of Mary's character through a classical framework that captures the small and fragile beauty of life.
1: I guess when you start studying oils, you look at master copy, or you do master copies, you look at the old masters, and you start noticing how objects are placed within a composition you start studying color use value use really analyzing what you're seeing and thinking about what you like and don't like what do you want to bring into your work it can also be really helpful <laughs> like, I don't like what that artist did that is information in and of itself it's not a value judgment on them, but maybe it's just not something you're interested in. So for me, I really wanted to be able to communicate form. And that is basically like performing a magic trick on a 2d surface, making something look 3d because it's all about analyzing how light will perform in any kind of subject. And, you know, I think there's something really beautiful in that the old masters were creating these paintings the same way that we do now. They had nothing special or nothing over what we have now. And they were able to make such incredible paintings. And I think that's why it's so important to go to museums, especially as an artist and see what really vibrates with you, what speaks to you on a deeper level and that was kind of what
2: drew me in I didn't remember until you just asked me this that my mom my parents but it was really my mom of course you know got me a book and it was how to draw horses but it was like by this one woman I don't remember her name of course I was a child I didn't know the author but it was the best book honestly it broke down like the steps of like how to draw but and and like applying that to like the specific form so it was like here's how you break down the shapes and how you get the proportion and then here's what the different types of pencils will do with like and the different effects that they'll make with different types of horses or the different types of hair so honestly and it was graphite specific so i'm just remembering that that book was like my holy grail and that taught me like pretty much how to draw with graphite but it was horses <laughs>
1: I'm pretty sure I had that same book.
0: Abby Olson is based in Ann Arbor, Michigan. She practices a range of specialties, including illustration, painting, animation, and textile. Common subjects include nature's symbiotic relationship with the human condition and the preservation of that connection. In her series of six ink drawings inspired by The Secret Garden, Abby highlights critical moments in Mary's development to illustrate how integral the environment is to her growth. Abby's work shows that the hidden critters and corners of Mistlethwaite Manor are no mere backdrop, but characters in and of themselves.
2: I totally respect the graphite medium. It's, but I do like something straightforward like a graphite that just you put it on the paper, and that's the mark it makes. And you can manipulate it a little bit, but, but yeah, drawing and painting are so so different. Since I grew up drawing, it's very straightforward to me, and painting is adding colors, like adding a whole nother like. It's not. I was gonna say a whole other planet to the solar system, but it's like a whole other galaxy. Like it adds so much, and I got to escape that a little bit with the secret garden, which it was it was kind of nice getting back to my roots of black and white in the secret garden. But
1: well, I think drawing with graphite is harder in a lot of ways because I feel like I can hide mistakes in pretty color. And you can't really, like, you have to be really honest with graphite. Like, there is no hiding
3: if you mess up. I think when we think about self-expression, the idea is that it's really organic and spontaneous. And it may not, there may not be like a method to the madness. But for your creative practices, that's obviously not true. I mean, oil painting demands technique as Graphite does as well. And so how do you see these practices informing creative expression?
1: Well, I basically see my work as being informed by two sides of me. Like there's the craftsman side of me and then there's the artist side. And the craftsman allows the artist to express what she wants to say. And I think in terms of applying that to modern living the modern world, the honestly, both sides do inform how I view the world and how I think everybody can view the world because the craftsman side of me has honestly changed how I see objects, like how I see shadows, how I see color. I notice things in a different way. And I think I interact and show my uh, show up in the world in a different way because I have that background and it's weird because I like, Oh my gosh, do you see that shadow? Like that shadow is so beautiful. It's so soft. Like, do you see the color? Do you see the shape? Like it's incredible, but it's like from a stop sign or something. Like it's not something that you would innately think as being beautiful. It's not like a still life setup.
2: I really resonated with the, the idea of the craftsperson and the artist working together. Um, I thought that was a really cool comparison. And um, I was thinking about art and other creative ways of expressing yourself. I also like to sing and to dance. You can express yourself through dance, no matter how much training you have. Same with art. But it's just how effectively can you communicate the message that you're trying to get across based on how much craft or training you have behind it. But I think, you know, self-expression can bring joy, whether you're trained in dance or singing or art or not. But, yeah, I think if it if it's something that grabs you, like art, like it, art was for me, then you'll just naturally, over time, you just develop the... The craft develops with the passion, so.
3: I love what you said about inquisitiveness. I think that's kind of at the heart of a lot of creative practice in a way that people might not realize. And so I'm curious, you know, Abigail, particularly, at least my perception of like oil painting feels very auspicious and inaccessible. How can I be more inquisitive um, when it comes to oil painting in particular
1: well I mean that's the yeah the amazing thing is that like there's no there's no right way like and there's no way to have a wrong opinion about art there's no way to have a right opinion about art because it's art and it's completely subjective and I, I guess that's what's beautiful and so I think if you want to be a better viewer, then if you see something that you like, I think it's key to spend time with it and really try and see, like, where in your body that is resonating. Like, where is this bringing me joy? And is there a particular part of this painting that is bringing me in? And just dedicate yourself to being the person that sticks their nose in the painting. Like, get up a little too close make the you know the docent at the museum a little bit nervous like be that person who wants to be inquisitive and like if you are by extension you're gonna be a better viewer
2: my only thought was like yeah like I know the the space for viewing a lot of these paintings can also be intimidating um like it is important to go to museums but it's like Like your regular person might feel a little out of place in a museum, in an art museum, but just like anything in life to be like a better viewer and get more out of it, you know, just get rid of the fear of like, is what's going to, somebody going to think of me if I stick my face right up in this painting, or like, am I looking at this too long? Like, I know that's some of the things that I would be thinking personally, but like nobody they're everyone's thinking about themselves, like just in general, like, they're not thinking about you, so you know, experience it in a way that's like. And I also like how you, Abigail, brought up feeling joy in your body because that's what I chase in in like nature and in art is like a physical like sensation sometimes that beauty and art and nature can bring you. And uh, yeah, just don't be afraid to to get in there and get into those museums because they're they're for the public, they're for you. And speaking about like revered art forms and making them fit my own practice, I would talk about textiles. I did get to study in Florence, Italy for just a few weeks, but that's like the textile capital or was at some point the textile capital of the world. And I got to study screen printing on textiles with a master there. Well, you know, but she was... um, a lifelong screen printer, textile artist. I got to study with her and learn traditional Italian screen printing. And I was able to take that and kind of put in some subversive kind of imagery in my own practice, but still using like the old... The regal and traditional, like, style of patterns that they would use in their textiles, that very, like, that's still very pleasing to the eye and traditional, like, overall look. But when you would come up closer and see what the actual subjects of the patterns were in my, you know, textiles, it was, I was able to include some different modern modern subjects and some comments on environmentalism and consumption, which ended up being a cool project, a way to kind of merge the new and the old with those traditional techniques and then kind of modern ideas.
1: And how did that play out in your um, pattern? Because you did the pattern for The Secret Garden, too.
0: Abby O's three patterns, lavender, ivy, and clover, show endangered flowers against a backdrop of emerald, pastel green, and purple. The beautiful design bookends the Secret Garden art novel, gently transporting readers into Frances Hodgson Burnett's world.
2: In creating the pattern for the Secret Garden, I was doing research on, like, how do we make this a bit more meaningful than just pretty flowers? Because it's going to be pretty flowers. (laughs) But, you know, I know Maggie brought to my attention, like, flowers can have so many different meanings and have throughout historical context and and throughout you know even pattern making and textiles and so i was able to find some flowers that are endangered actually in the uk in england where the secret garden takes place and in india where the beginning of the secret garden takes place so those are actually the flowers that you see in the secret garden pattern they're rare and endangered flowers reading The Secret Garden, honestly, was so, felt nostalgic for me, even though I'd never read it before, because I I have had these moments that Mary's had, like, in the garden when she sees the crocuses coming up through in the beginning of spring. We, like, we had those in my backyard, so, like, and being a very disagreeable child, I could relate to that a little bit. I'm sure my mom would agree, <laughs> and, like, finding solace and running and playing outside and I just identified with so much how nature helped these kids that it totally brought me back to my childhood. And Winnie the Pooh was actually a big part of my early childhood. But um, I think it was that nostalgia as well as the illustration style of Winnie the Pooh that kind of connected them for me. I just felt like the illustration style of Winnie the Pooh is so whimsical and and it's so suggestive. It, it's suggestive in the way that it doesn't portray everything, that it lets the readers and the kids fill in the scene with their imagination because it'll just be a little vignette of Pooh and Piglet just walking and their footsteps will travel down the page so you can imagine where they're going or where they've been. And I thought that kind of whimsical, kind of uplifting, kind of suggestive, like, illustration... We really capture the the feeling that I got from reading The Secret Garden.
0: Abby O's illustration Piper captures Dickon reclining at the base of a tree playing his pipe. Mary and the woodland creatures alike stop to listen to him. The gentle shading evokes the transfixing calm of Dickens' personality. The use of both light and shadow give the woods a mysterious aura while depicted in stunning detail. Look closer, and you may find more creatures than at first glance.
2: I think people forget that we are animals a lot, and we tend to separate ourselves from animals. But in the Secret Garden, I liked how they coexisted. Even though it was a man-made manor, there were mice in the little chair, and they lived there. They coexisted with the humans and, of course, the robin and all the nature that we didn't see, like all the bugs and and everything, um, of course, that lives at the manor um, with the humans and they're such an important part of just the life and the nature that they're their characters too even if they're not mentioned so I thought it was important especially in the drawing Piper to include the little characters the little animals because Dickens such a I don't know he's such like a beacon for these these animals and he kind of speaks for them so I thought that they them being gathered around him was appropriate. And they were definitely there. They were definitely there in the woods listening.
1: I love the ethereal feel of that piece. Like you definitely get a sense of like the air between the trees and it kind of feels magical or like from a fairy tale or something. You can definitely like get the sense of place.
3: And so I really loved that piece. It was beautiful. Abigail, through speaking with you about your collection and what it represents, You sort of talked about
1: how a vanitas captures this fleeting moment. The vanitas is all about uh, the ephemeral nature of life. There's something really beautiful in that it is like such a tradition, and yet it is, it's like such a solid tradition, and yet it's about something that is otherworldly and is about time itself and, you know, not to be morbid, but like, it's mostly about death. And I think that is really beautiful because my work in philosophy was on death and dying. So I'm a little bit biased in this, but I think that Death allows us to have meaning in our life. Death allows us to, you know, want to be creative and want to express ourselves because we're only here for a short period of time. And so this subject matter is kind of the traditional way of capturing that. So there's a lot of symbolism within these paintings. So like, then there will be bubbles, or rotting fruit, or a skull, or a fly. Insects are normally pretty big, or like wilting flowers, which I went with, which is a little bit nicer than bugs.
0: <laughs> the vanitas still life is a traditional composition that emerged in 17th century Holland. Abigail M.'s oil painting is in the same classical style that would have been found in the halls of Misselthwaite Manor. The posed, meticulous quality of Abigail's Venitas still life reflects the fragility of life. By removing the organic elements of the garden, such as Colin's mother's roses and the robin's egg from their natural context, Abigail reminds us of the temporary, fleeting nature of such objects. Preserved in timeless oil paint perfection, we're able to appreciate their beauty in the captured moment.
1: So, for mine, I included the flowers that are kind of starting to relax a little bit, and the eggs, which are obviously very symbolic within the book. They are also symbolic of time and the natural world and how that plays out. And the nest itself is so delicate. And I really played with lost edges there because I wanted the nest to kind of be reabsorbed back into the background and to not be its own statement. It's kind of part of this whole, it's a temporary home. Again, it will collapse with time. And then for the paper, it was about communication. And that's something that I've been really interested in within my own work is how we communicate and how communication can go wrong (laughs) and kind of the ephemeral nature of words themselves and the misinterpretation that can go on there.
2: My favorite piece out of all of them is one of yours. It's um, The Landscape. The Moors is my favorite.
0: Abigail M's piece, The Moors, depicts the landscape of the secret garden. Misselthwaite Manor is tucked in the distance as clouds billow overhead. The wild wind and trees are forbidding, but also offer an opportunity for change. In Concealing Dark Tones, Abigail captures the moor as a vast ocean. What is now foreign will become familiar, as Mary and the viewer both explore the individual ecosystems that make this environment so enchanting.
2: I think it's just such a perfect representation of the mood of like when Mary first gets there and it's kind of, it just has such feeling. And, and one of the reasons I think is because of the depth of color used in the shadowy areas. Like I think oftentimes shadows, people will just add black (laughs) when they're painting it or, you know, doing anything, but I can tell that you, you like loved and thought out every, you know, hill and every like brushstroke of all the, the landscape and all the foliage. And even though it's dark, it, it really reads and the colors are really beautiful. I really love it.
1: It was the first time I had like experimented with shadows in a landscape in this way. So I'm like, so pleased that you liked that when art is done well The artist can give the viewer a glimpse into seeing the world that way because you can show everyday objects as being beautiful and maybe you can get your viewer excited about a shadow if you're super, super lucky (laughs) and like if you can draw somebody in and have all these like hidden objects or colors that you know, if somebody comes up close to the painting that they will notice, I think I tend to hide things in my work just for that person. Like, because I, I hope that somebody's gonna want to stick their nose in my painting and see what's going on in that little spot. So I, I try to hide things for that person. <laughs>
0: Whether hidden in oils or revealed in graphite, we are so fortunate to have these incredible artists as part of our own artistic legacy. Thank you again to Abigail M. and Abby O. for joining us today. If you are interested in learning more about the Secret Garden art novel and the work of Abby Olson and Abigail Matheson, you can find more at bondandgrace.com. Meet us here next time for more conversations with today's best emerging artists.